Hey, folks. Hello. My name is Ellen Adair. And I am Eric Gildy. And welcome to Take Me Into the Ball Game. Yeah. In an effort to bring the entire Take Me Into the Ball Game project into one feed, we are going to be releasing our old episodes on Pitcher List week by week. Yes. Enjoy for the first time or revisit an old favorite. And so now, this is one of them. <laughs> Welcome to Take Me Into the Ball Game. My name is Ellen Adair. And I am Eric Gildy. And we're a couple of actors who, uh, during the coronavirus uh, induced lack of baseball, yeah, uh, decided that we would watch a bunch of baseball movies and then subsequently decided that we would grade them on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. Um, for those of you who are not familiar or who did not listen to our first podcast, um, basically 20 to 30 is like well below average. This person does not belong at all in the major leagues. Yeah. 40 is below average. 45 is kind of like fringy. 50 is average, an average major leaguer. So that's actually good. Like this person is going to be a productive major league player. 55, obviously above average. 60 is great. 70 is considered plus plus exceptional and 80 is like hall of fame level talent exactly that's how it goes mm -hmm. and uh our first episode we did major league a uh, lovely scrappy cleveland indians story this week we are doing something a little bit different that's a little more firmly based in uh actual baseball history Yes, that is true. Um, so this week, we are going to be talking about the 1942 film, The Pride of the Yankees. 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 actually kept saying the title for the rest of it. Um, so uh, just a little bit of background. Um, the Pride of the Yankees is, of course, a biopic about Lou Gehrig. It is done in a, you know, classic old Hollywood style. It came out in 1942, just 17 months after Lou Gehrig's actual death. Uh, Samuel Goldwyn was initially a little reticent about doing a movie, um, he thinks that baseball movies don't really make money. He just figured, honestly, if people wanted baseball, they'd just go to a baseball game. And he then apparently saw footage of Lou Gehrig's farewell speech, was very moved, and had a change of heart. The film was directed by Sam Wood, who has directed a lot of successful films, maybe most notably this and Goodbye Mr. Chips. He also directed um, Ginger Rogers' Oscar-winning performance in Kitty Foyle and directed a couple of Marx Brothers movies, A Day at the Races and A Night at the Opera. So we've got both times of day covered there. One thing that I came across was an anecdote where uh, Sam Wood had become so exasperated by the Marx Brothers' lack of seriousness on set that he had shouted, you can't make an actor out of clay, to which Groucho Marx immediately responded, nor a director out of wood. 
And um, <laughs> I think that's very, very delightful. Um, it seems like he did a lot of work in silent film, too. So he's one of those directors that really kind of like bridged the gap where like a big chunk of his career was kind of in the silent era and then had a number of things uh, after that. And Gary Cooper is the star playing Lou Gehrig in in Pride of the Yankees. He was not a baseball guy. He's a rancher guy from Montana. So he was not initially that interested, but he um, owed Goldwyn a picture just contractually, I think. And so signed up for it. Maybe that's enough background for now. I was just thinking that uh, with no knowledge whatsoever of the film Goodbye, Mr. Chips, I feel like it would be more fun if there were an entire podcast of us saying Goodbye, Mr. Chips, than an entire podcast of us saying Pride of the Yankees. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's that... a lot of different angles you could go with <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, so... so the main course of our podcast here is to rank the film on the 2080 scale on a number of different categories. We do way more categories than scouts actually do for for baseball players. But our first category is amount of baseball in this film. My goodness. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to give it like a... Hmm. I want to say a like 35. I, I feel like I knew you were going to say 35. Yeah. I feel like I knew a split second before you said it that you were going to say 35. We never, we don't talk about any of the stuff beforehand, by the way. No, we don't. We're not sure if we should. We're still figuring out how useful <laughs> that is. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. That's, um, there's a, that's totally fair. There's definitely baseball in it, but it seems like it was constructed that the baseball is really helping to get to the next story point of um, Gehrig's life, his marriage, his relationships off the field. And one thing that I think is maybe a reason for it is this is so recent, right? A lot of people who are going to be watching this movie in 1942 are going to be very familiar with Lou Gehrig's career and combine that with Sammy Goldwyn's um, sort of hesitant to make a baseball-y baseball film. And I think that's why you see this, not mishmash, but it's really a story that baseball is a part of it, but it's also about the mother-son relationship. It's about his, I mean, the main thing is the love uh, the love story with Eleanor. Um, Ellen shakes her head and Yeah, but there's no the excuse. This is, this is the point that I want to make here, like historical context and everything. But if... We're just scoring this as a, a new historicist theory of baseball movies, like 35. I mean, I, I think very charitably actually gave it 40. Okay. Um, I, would, I would rank it with a 40 amount of baseball. There is a below average amount of baseball in a movie that is ostensibly supposed to be about baseball. And... Uh, a lot of the baseball is sort of like as a montage of several games. <laughs> so many montages. So many montages. <laughs> the montage that we wanted in uh, Major League, we got more montage than we could ever want in Pride of the Yankees. It's just not as satisfying as an in-game sequence. And I think some of the, this is related to the montages a little bit. It's why I went 35 instead of 40. Some of the montages I think are really delightful and fun, but... Like the very first 
or no, is it the second one? The montage where we're seeing the the ride the bench montage where we see Lou Gehrig sitting and all these pennants flash by of the different teams and you see it's a montage of time going on with with Lou Gehrig not yet getting his chance to to show what he can do. And I actually found that to be delightful and um, enjoyed it quite a bit. But I I wouldn't exactly call that baseball. And there were a number of moments like that where I was thinking, yeah, it's taking place technically during a game. So I guess one could argue that it's a baseball scene. But in terms of actual baseball being played, in terms of following um, following a, an at-bat or an inning as a arc of a story. There's very little of that actually in the film. Yeah, I actually, I found that sequence with him like watching something apparently with flags flying over his face, extremely annoying. Even though one of them says Philadelphia on it? Even though one of them says Philadelphia on it, even worse. Like I don't even get to see the Phillies take the field. And one of the things that I grant about that montage is that it's like a two year montage. It's true. I mean, you know, because it was it was a couple of years of Gehrig basically like riding the pine and being a pinch hitter before he replaced Wally Pipp. And so, yeah, like, I mean, it's not in the film portrayed as two years of him uh, sitting on the bench. But like, in fact, that is we got two years of him looking at something while a flag flies over his face in my my overall review not knowing anything about the history of the film was that I was like, it felt to me like it was made by someone who didn't trust that people would want to watch baseball sequences in a movie about a baseball player. I think, and like, having done some research, I think that's dead on. Yeah, I think like there was exactly a more right. in-depth sequence at an amusement park than there was of any baseball game. It's true. And, and like learning the thing after the fact about Sam Goldwyn that he was like, yeah, well, women are most of the movie going audience and women don't like baseball. So we don't want to put baseball in our baseball movie. Just like, screw you, Sam. (laughs) The other thought that I had at that time when we were just watching Gary Cooper ride the pine with flags flying in front of his face was like, are, is is this is this hedging about the fact that he's not a super plausible? Yeah, I don't. Man, I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. Part of it was me wondering. Some of that plausibility had to do with the fact that so many of those scenes of seeing him play is with a much younger Lou Gehrig, and so part of it was just like, well, but I mean, Babe Ruth was six years away from dying, and I thought. He did a very believable job of playing Babe yeah, Ruth. Yeah, it was really actually interesting to see a little bit of his sort of like in-game behavior in the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are, of course, things that I didn't know while I was watching the movie, but that I learned after the fact. Well, something that I intuited from like the very first sequence that we see, um, you know, purportedly Lou Gehrig playing baseball. I was like, oh, that's a baseball double. Like, oh, clearly, all right, that's Gary Cooper. And then in that shot, that is not him doing that thing. Yeah. Um, there are a and- number of little tricks. Did you see, did, we never talked about this, but did you notice in that first Sandlot game when Lou Gehrig hits the ball? And I'm sure we'll, we can talk more about this scene in another section. We can talk about it but, now. But when he hits the ball, there's actually no contact in the frame. You can tell that there that it, there was either someone out of frame or like a ball machine outside of the frame like hurling it because 
you can see the ball coming up kind of like from behind him in the shot. I did not notice that at the time. And that's because I was distracted, probably purposefully, by literally the most ridiculous windup that I have ever seen. Ridiculous, like good? No, like ridiculous, like implausible, farcical, bad. I mean, it's a child. I get it. But like it was... I, I mean, I was I was totally distracted by how ridiculous the like pitcher kids wind up was. And like yeah. I have seen Tim Robbins in Bull Durham. So that's <laughs> how ridiculous it was. Well, and again, that that scene goes to show that even from the beginning, the interest of the film in baseball is only insofar as it will illuminate story points about Lou Gehrig and his character. Right. Because he goes up to that kind of bully catcher guy wanting to play. It's not clear to me that Lou wanted, was on his way to that specific match. He kind of rides up in an ice truck holding school books and then runs runs into traffic. And then he sees he sees the the pop-up and runs and tries to catch it and fails. And I'm not sure. If he was headed there riding on the back of the ice truck or what was going on. Anyway, that's a separate thing. Um, and maybe just a little a little there are confusing a lot of start. In the pride of the Yankees. But this that scene I feel like existed also for reasons of he wants to play, but the kid won't let him. And then he's got these baseball cards where where he's got all of these amazing, you know, Honus Wagner, Grover Cleveland, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander, not a Grover Cleveland baseball card. Those are very rare. And Super you valuable. hear those old timers, Tris Speaker, Johnny Evers, Hasbins, Christy Mathewson, a dime a dozen. But he keeps holding on to the Babe Ruth card. Eventually, he gives those cards, except for the Babe Ruth card, to play. And I feel like it's this little character moment of showing Lou Gehrig being gracious, even as he's kind of being taken advantage of, like like he, something's being taken from him to allow him to do the thing that he wants to do. Mm. Like what a stand up guy. Like it felt like that was almost the moment as much as anything else up until he hits the ball um, and breaks the window of the cake shop. Classic, classic, classic. One of the most interesting controversies for me as I was um, digging a little bit into the history of the film after watching it was um, learning that purportedly uh, Cooper wasn't comfortable about hitting left-handed, like no shade in that. I've actually watched a number of films with famous left-handed players thinking, gosh, did those opposite-handed actors learn how to hit that way? That is crazy impressive. Um, but apparently, according to legend, they flipped everything that they shot where he was batting, which is just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Like, apparently, he would run to the third base side instead of the first base side. So this retroactively had me thinking about, like, everything that they would need to do to make that work. Like, you'd have to have a little Yankees hat with the Yankees signal mm-hmm. symbol flipped, and you'd have to have the lettering Boy, you would not, on the jersey. You would not want to call on the superhero that responds to the Yankee signal. <laughs> I wouldn't want to. No, I mean, Other yeah, you, you, that was yes. not a general you. Yes. I've read that as well. And I've, I've definitely heard some skepticism or some things saying, oh no, that, that is just a legend. It's not the case. Um, I'm not really sure if there is a definitive answer on it. 
the people that I read did say, are you going to go to the... Um, well, uh, there there was a 2013 article in the New York Times um, uh, where this fella, Tom Scheiber, part, uh, apologies if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, he is the curator at the Baseball Hall of Fame, who is basically like, that's impossible, that would have been too hard, exactly the thing that I had been thinking about, like whoever the continuity person was mm. on this film, being like, oh, no, no, uh, Mr. Cooper, I'm sorry, you've got the backwards Yankee symbol hat on. We need to change that around for this, like, how hard that would have been. Um, and he just said that there was only this one shot where he was throwing left-handed, that it was flipped. But his whole argument, like, if you read that article, is basically like, that would have been too hard. They could never have done it it would have been too hard. And it was also based on like the buttons are on the same side and like the zipper is on the same side. And this is contradicted by what Cooper, what Gary Cooper said about shooting the film and what his daughter said about shooting the film of like, yeah, I just like, I definitely couldn't figure out how to hit left-handed. And ultimately I sort of feel like, why would he lie about it? Like, if yeah. he had gone to all of that trouble to be able to hit left-handed, why would he be like, oh, no, 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 they just flopped the film? And and to me, Tom Scheiber's argument feels a little bit like people who don't believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare's plays. Like, ugh, like how oh, could those continuity people have done that? That yeah. would have been way too hard. And I'm like, people who work on film sets are geniuses and they work so hard at their jobs like, I totally buy that the wardrobe would have been like, oh, yeah, we need to have the zipper on the other side for when we have the lettering on yeah. the other side. Like, that's not implausible to me at all. And it does seem like there was a not a lot of argument that at the very least there's, I think, one shot where they did the mirroring thing of him throwing. And then in other shots, I think it's far enough away that they were able to get somebody to stand in in that moment. But... They even brought in Lefty O'Doul to try to help get him to learn how to throw left-handed in a believable way. Because whether or not Gary Cooper could learn how to hit left-handed, throwing believably left-handed, I think is probably a lot more difficult. And Lefty O'Doul was, um, <laughs> was quoted as saying that Gary Cooper threw the ball like an old woman tossing a hot biscuit. You know how those old women, you know how they love to throw those, those old hot biscuits. Those ladies and those biscuits. Yeah, yes. And also shout out to Floyd Babe Herman, who was the who was his baseball double in this. I mean, ironically, Floyd is a below average fielder, but uh, <laughs> that's a discussion for another day. Um, so we've sort of sidetracked ourselves, but that's exactly what we intend to do here on Take Me Into the Ball Game. Yes. Um, but I think, well, can we move on to our next category? I think we can do that. So our next category is uh, baseball accuracy. Baseball accuracy. Um, well, I gave the first rating last time, so why don't you go? Okay. Um, so I'm also going to give this a 40 here. Okay. Um, there, there are, even with as few sort of baseball sequences as there are, there are enough like baseball-related inaccuracies to sort of Gehrig's life that I, I feel like it, it has to get a 40. And the one that bothers me the most is all of the stuff surrounding what was one of the first satisfying sort of baseball sequences in the film 
in which Babe Ruth and Luke Gehrig are trying to hit dueling homers for this sick kid in the hospital who it isn't isn't real. It's like based uh, slightly on the Johnny Sylvester story, which of course happened in like a different year and by mail and it was only Babe Ruth. But like that kind of thing, I totally get why you want to dramatize something and make it more interesting. Yeah. Um, but so this kid, number one, he's a really greedy, sick kid. He's promised a homer by Babe fucking Ruth. And then he wants from, from one from Gehrig. And then, no, he wants two from Gehrig. Like, this is definitely like a kid in the grocery checkout line, like, bartering about, like, how many, what, how many treats can he get? Yeah. Um, look, I know that the kid is, is sick, and this is not a time to joke about people being in the hospital, but we know that the kid is fine in the end. Um, anyway, so there's actually this sort of nice in-game narrative about a baseball game, like, is he going to hit two home runs for the kids? And you get to see, like, unheroic at-bats where he's striking out. Yes. Where there's, like, the play-by-play happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, suddenly, after however long of being really frustrated because there was no baseball action except for in montages, I'm, like, kind of on the edge of my street. St- seat, excuse me. Um, but... The seat is on the edge of the street. <sighs> This podcast is going to be really long if you make fun of me every time I miss say a word. You're doubly on the edge. I'm supporting you. Okay. So my real question is, what Yankees Cardinals World Series is this? Because, yes, we all know how many championships those franchises have. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see that they're celebrating later in the movie. So it's got to be 1928, even though the Babe Ruth, Johnny Sylvester thing was originally 1926. But And the 28 series is the one in which... Lou Gehrig hit two home runs in a, in a game. Yes, except for he never hit two home runs in a game in which Babe Ruth also hit one home run. That's true. And now it is turning ugly. So we had an audio issue here for a moment, and we lost some of the things that I said. But in this moment, this is the point that I wanted to make, which is that come to find out, the combo of two Gehrig homers and one Babe Ruth homer never happened in 1928. In game three, Gehrig hit two home runs, but Ruth didn't hit any. And in game four, Gehrig hit one and Ruth hit three. The only time that we get two Gehrig home runs and one Ruth home run is in the 1932 series versus the Cubs. So my question is, Why not just make it the 1932 series? So uh, what's your score for baseball accuracy slash inaccuracy? I think I'm going to I think I'm going to go also with 40 um, for the reasons that you described. And then there's also other peripheral things. There's a lot that the movie actually like does pretty well in terms of Gehrig's life. Accurate, at least in kind of like a broad sense. There are limited, fabricated stories, although some of the characters are fabricated. It's a tricky thing when you're trying to make an inspiring movie about a guy who had a horrible illness and passed away far too soon, but had a good life. He he went to college. He got drafted by the Yankees. He became a star. He married the love of his life. And I think this was one of the things that the screenwriters we're trying to deal with. What's the nickname that's thrown around? Was that an actual nickname when he trips over the uh, Tanglefoot? Oh, Tanglefoot, yes. I I tried to find, I thought, oh, did it, is this just something that I didn't know about him? And I never found it. 
Yeah, no, it's it's complete movie fabrication because, in fact, um, he did not, he and Eleanor did not meet in, I think it depicts them in the film meeting in like 1925 or something like that, or 1923, whatever. Um, and they actually, I think, met in 1932 when he was playing the Cubs in the World Series and being such a total stud, he hit three homers he had eight runs. He had nine RBI. Instead, they opted for the Mr. Tanglefoot route of them meeting. Yeah. The one where he like tr- he trips over a bunch of bats in case anybody is listening to this who has not seen this. He's movie. such a goof. I mean, there's a part of me that like wants to go back to an era in which Tanglefoot was a sick burn. Yeah. But like I I just so this is a problem that I have with biopics in general, and I actually think that this one is not bad, but I hate it when they try to tell too much of a story, and I feel like it would be better to try to tell the person's life in a shorter period of time. You can t- still sort of cover much of their life, and I kind of, I kept on thinking after the fact, how interesting would it be if actually so much of this was around the 1932 World Series? You could have a more legit you know, Billy uh, in the hospital story. Sure. You could have him actually meeting Eleanor at the time when he did and, like, him being the total hero that he was. But for some reason, they were invested in him seeming like a doof. Tanglefoot is not, as far as I was able to find out, an actual nickname given to Lou Gehrig. But I did read on Bleacher Report something that said that he did have the nickname Biscuit Pants. Oh, my God. A reference to the way he filled out his trousers. (gasps) And if you are looking for a nickname to get a lady into you, why not be just perfectly honest and talk about how Lou Gehrig was thick? I mean, we've already established how much the old women love to throw those biscuits. (laughs) Yeah. and You guys, this is the fact that you were listening to this podcast for. Biscuit pants. I did not know this, and I'm so, so delighted. Yeah, no, it's... Fantastic. And there's even oh, a... Um, I'm going to call all my favorite players Biscuit Pants. From I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the thing that I that I have this written down on and I'm not finding it. But um, Lou Gehrig also uh, acted a little bit. He, he did a couple of films. One, I think the one that he did... Actually, maybe this was the only one that he did was called Rawhide. Something like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this sheet before we're done. Um, about... A baseball player, Lou Gehrig, giving up baseball to own a ranch. And then he gets involved in like a, a, you know, no good people at the at the ranch. And I actually feel like Gary Cooper would have been more qualified to be in that. Exactly. Isn't it an interesting thing (laughs) that that there's like that weird like um, gyre there. But the just related to just related to Biscuit Pants was that. As they were trying to get a movie career going for Lou Gehrig, they also were considering him for the role of Tarzan. But then, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but one of the reasons that they were sort of against it was that... um, Was he too thick? They said that his legs were... It was something like they they were more like functional than aesthetic or something like that. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't believe that at all. He was Biscuit Pants. He was Biscuit Pants. Team Biscuit Pants. Oh, my God. Oh, Aaron Nola is such a Biscuit Pants. Okay. <laughs> um, so just a couple of other uh, inaccuracies. 
Um, when he joins the team in 1923, he's looking at the lockers, and Bill Dickey, Mark Koenig, and uh, Tony Lazari weren't actually part of that team yet, but he does go by their lockers. I also yeah. felt like there was a little bit of an inconsistency in locker size. I don't oh, know if you noticed I that. Didn't and notice actually, that. it was that his locker seemed to be much larger than anybody else's, which I was, I was like, right, they gave the rookie the really big. Uh, the really big locker. Bill Dickey apparently was very reluctant to join the film. Really? Because he, well, just initially, because he couldn't wrap, his, everything was so recent. The loss of Lou Gehrig was ah. so in recent memory. And he, he thought it felt awful to think of calling another guy Lou. Oh, that's very so, sweet. Yeah, it's very sweet. But then I think they were, the studio was like, well, that's, I'm sorry to hear that, but we'll go in a different direction and they started investigating other options. And then he said, well, no, hold on, hold on, just a minute. Um, and ended up doing it, which I'm glad he did. Cause he's great in it. Yes. We'll talk more about that later on. Yeah. Um, so they changed the most famous speech in perhaps all of baseball in this movie, arguably all of sports, maybe all of sports, but I'm so baseball centric that I never want to necessarily claim for other sports. Um, but I mostly actually don't have a problem with that kind of a thing. They mm -hmm. they basically, they moved his famous luckiest man on earth line from the beginning of the speech because Gehrig was just speaking extemporarily um, to the end of the speech. And the main thing that I missed from the real speech was he had this rhetorical device of like, when you have a like insert good thing, that's something. And when you have a insert other good thing, that's something. But they just took that out um, and in the film, he says, I have a wife, a companion for life, who has shown me more courage than I ever knew. But I like much better, rhetorically, what he said, which was, when you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. And I just think that's better writing than it's, what was actually yeah. in the movie. Um so there's literally an entire book about the inaccuracies in this film. So we're not going to try to go into every Whoa. single one. Um, but I do have one, and this is a direct quote from something that I wrote while watching the movie. A lot of questionable trajectories of balls that are supposed to be homers. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to leave that there. That's true of the, the sandlot ball into the cake shop at the beginning, too. Also, In yes. part because... The ball is not coming from the bat. It just looks very weird. So that kid must have just but been I was, awful. I was totally misdirected by that pitcher kid. Did you have any one last inaccuracy thought? Um, I'm just, I found my sheet. I'm confirming that it was called Rawhide. Um, I think it's on YouTube in full, if anybody is curious. I have not yet watched it. We've all it. got the time. Gehrig's legs were, quote, functional rather than decorative, which is way better than what I paraphrased oh, oh. not true Fake <laughs> news. so now we're going to move on to our next category um which is storytelling and for those of you who didn't listen to the uh first one of our podcasts you're welcome storytelling is basically encompasses both writing but it also encompasses direction editing pacing that kind of thing yeah uh I think I'm going to go 55. I'm also going to go 55. Oh, yeah? 
Yeah, I think that there are there are some things that hold it back a little bit. There are some things that that give the storytelling an unfortunate ceiling that uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I would think could have been raised with just a couple of little tweaks here and there. But all in all, I thought it was I thought it was solid, and I would definitely qualify it as even though it's not. Um, suddenly among my favorite films now, it's the first time either of us had seen this. It's definitely a movie that I went into with some skepticism and then actually was pretty captivated by a lot of the story. It really, it really pulled me in actually. Yeah, same. So, you know, here with the storytelling, I don't want to ding the movie for any of the things that we've already discussed. So I'm sort of taking out amount of baseball or like baseball accuracy or anything. This is just about like, it could be totally fanciful. What is the story? And yeah, I feel like 55, like it is actually an above average major leaguer um, as, a, as a story. And like, I, I also um, was skeptical and I think I remained skeptical for kind of longer in the film. Mm. Uh, early on, I remember thinking that the, the, that whole childhood Gehrig sequence is completely ridiculous and totally unnecessary because they cover so much of that information in that like scene that he has with, what's that character, Myra on the stairs. That scene is so, that whole, that whole thing is so strange. Because the way that she, like, laughs completely heartlessly at that guy who's like, I'm just going to go drink myself to death. <laughs> like, right. Also, maybe not a great way to open a movie, I guess. Right. Well, the, there was something, I don't know, something that I found very strange, but was also kind of delighted by at the same time in that whole sequence, particularly because it felt almost to be going against a little bit. Or I think I interpreted it differently than maybe how I was supposed to. Because after that whole scam where some of the other people in the frat get Myra to, uh, particularly the villain like Van, I think his name is, which is a good villain name it's a great in 1942 and a good one in 2020. I mean, I do have a friend named Van who is not a villain. Well, there are exceptions. And anyway, Van puts Myra up to making Lou think that she's into him and they dance. It's the first time that he's danced with anyone it's very sweet. He goes home and takes a flower that she gave to him and presses it in a book and then imagines the dance and and it's all very sweet. And then the next day goes in to serve food to the members of the the frat that he is. I don't think it's clear that he is yet in, but has become like a pinned pledge to. And they all sort of tease him about it. And it turns out that it was just a putting on. And Lou Gehrig loses his mind and jumps over the table to punch Van. And he goes like vertically over the table. Yeah, it's crazy. And I just found it so funny in a like, how dare you, you like make like you're teasing me because I liked a pretty girl who expressed interest in me. And I'm I'm ashamed by that or I'm embarrassed by that. Like, it seems like such a lame prank, I guess. Yep, yeah, yeah. Oh, punked! <laughs> oh! <laughs> you had a conversation with a pretty girl! And you liked it! And you liked it, <laughs> like, lame! Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was... But but I think part of... And it almost makes me... It made me question even going to 60 with my storytelling because I don't know that I think those moments are great, but I kind of loved them all the same. I, I don't know if it was supposed to be... 
a moment where we were supposed to see Lou Gehrig kind of like standing up to the rich, snooty people as an immigrant's child who is just trying to like work his way up and get into some group or whatever. But um, that's not how it played to me. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, my main my main thesis here is that I actually warmed to the movie as it went on. Mm-hmm. I really liked the scene with the policeman when he's going to Eleanor to propose. This policeman like stops him outside of the door, being like, "Hey, you! What, what are you doing? What are you doing hanging out around outside?" Yeah. Uh, and then, as soon as the policeman recognizes him, he totally changes. And he goes inside. He comes in, makes himself known. <laughs> and then and then what I love is that he he leaves with some kind of line that's like that's like, Well, I know when I'm not needed somewhere, but like you came into the house, dude. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That was super delightful. That cop is like the the person, the last person at the party that doesn't have doesn't, any awareness know how to that, go. They, yeah, that they're supposed to go. Yeah, home. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everybody <laughs> Eleanor's like washing the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, well, it's getting late. And they're like, it sure is. Yeah. <laughs> Without any understanding that it that there are uh clues being given. Yeah, yeah. I like the the policeman um making a motorcade to get him to the stadium on time after his wedding. Which is an accurate thing, which that actually happened. That like I'm sure you did too, yes. but but that craziness of the wedding in New Rochelle as stuff is being moved in like actually happened and the all of the police were there the one thing that's not accurate about it i think is that i don't think that they got pulled over for speeding and then recognized them and it happened i think that the mayor was there for the wedding i don't know if he presided over it but he was there and a lot of the cops came kind of with him and then Sort of, they all kind of went together. I see. I yeah. think is what it happened. is more delightful the way that it happened in the movie, and so like I give them a plus for making it more delightful the way that it happened. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Um, I really like the moment like when his mom gets super into baseball that she's like, "What? You're not going to have him bunt on a on, for a hit?" Like it was, and and his dad getting really mad when there's a right-handed batter on the cake instead of a left-handed batter. I enjoyed. These I things. wondered if that might be revenge. For the breaking of the cake shop window so many years ago. Oh. Like, oh, you break my window. And I, I mean. (laughs) I make your son right-handed on the cake. (laughs) It's a vast right-handed conspiracy. (laughs) When the window got broken, I saw that it was, they they charge, uh, he, it's $18.50 to replace the window. And I was like, what is that in $20? Give me a sense of what this is. And it was something that made sense. It was like $500, which I think, yeah, I buy that as what a store window would cost. But I was sort of confused at how disappointed and upset the everybody was, but kind of how the mom just kind of had most of that money just in a coffee can. Yeah. Can you imagine just being like, oh, yeah, yeah I, th- I think I have $500 over here. And and her first line, the mom's first line is in a very or for the first word that she says in a very disappointed tone of voice is baseball. And so for her to go from that to um, someone who's got very strong opinions about the bunt and offering up ideas about like, oh, well, the like he hasn't been 
like hitting the pitcher has been screwing up his pitches since the sixth inning or whatever it is that she says is really, really delightful. Although I do also love how between Lou Gehrig's mom and then the other kind of immigrant mom at the beginning that allows child Lou to have his at bat. I think his name is Sasha who yells out the window Okay, and says like, no, 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 it's time for you to come home. Like there was just something that was, that sort of delighted me about like already we've established that a plot of this movie is like, is like mom, like immigrant moms who don't like their sons playing baseball (laughs) just right away. Yeah. Yeah, it was really funny to me that she responded to him saying that he was going to go into baseball the way that countless parents have responded to children saying that they're going to go into the arts. I was yes. like, we have all seen that scene. The The final thing that I want to mention uh, regards storytelling is that the sequence with the famous speech, um, despite the fact that I think that they could have adapted it uh, a little bit better, is very affecting. And ultimately, I was won over, even though it's a movie about a Yankee. I think so, too. Um, and I I don't think I have anything else to add to that. I'm thinking about storytelling stuff that I wanted to talk about. I guess when it comes to storytelling in this movie, so much of it has to do, I think, with the relationship that Lou has with the two women in his life. So much of the movie really is about that. There's the mother who is constantly called his best girl and some of it gets like kind of weird where it's like don't look at anybody else it it almost feels like um the like like the Oedipal version of someone saying the quiet part loud or something where it's like (laughs) (laughs) like where I mean and it's fun and they're playing along and they both sell it great but where Lou and his mom are talking and it's like oh you're my best girl right you're not going to look at anybody else well what about your father oh okay and then that is the mom is still invested in that even as he's bringing Eleanor to meet her which creates drama which I think was a little bit manufactured but not maybe as much as it seems and apparently Lou Gehrig's mom really was that kind of domineering I I've read a number of things about how he like she would always come to practices she would like have an opinion about like relationships that he was in and he really did have to put his foot down um when it came to Eleanor and was like like this was someone that I wasn't gonna let get away and I this is all a plus in terms of storytelling because even though some of it's like a little intense and funny like I think that it tracks really well throughout the film I think that when the mother goes over the top in terms of insinuating herself in all of like the newlyweds like homes like like the the shiffer robe or whatever that piece of furniture is she, like Eleanor picks out a beautiful antique one and the mom is like oh it's old like my son deserves new things and here's a sturdy practical sensible choice and look at this rug that you don't like, but I do. I'm going to buy it as a wedding present for you. So you have to take it. And then she changes the wallpaper and it, it reaches a level of like almost touching absurdity, which I think is intentional on the filmmaker's part and really delightful. And then Gary Cooper steps in, puts a foot down and sort of commits to Eleanor actually being his best girl. 
and having his mom deal with it and the mom deals with it fine. And I think that that's the way that that story moves. I found really satisfying. And there are a lot of little details too, like the flowers throughout Myra gives him one flower that he cherishes. And then later it seems like the same kind of flower Lou Gehrig sends to Eleanor, which she puts one in the scrapbook. And then Lou Gehrig gets the, the like horseshoe <laughs> of them afterwards. I think there's there are a number of little attentions to detail that whether or not they follow accuracy or whatever, just in terms of storytelling is is very thoughtful. And, you know, it, this movie received a number, 10 or 11 Academy Award nominations, including for the screenplay, which was written by a few people, but one of them was Herman Mankiewicz. Like there, there were, there were smart people working on this film. And even though there are things that are not strictly speaking true, a lot of the storytelling really works, I think. Yeah, there are definitely times, liberties that were taken where I was like, oh, I get why you do that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like filmmaking, TV writing, it, everything gets everything wrong. So I understand that there are going to be inaccuracies. On the other hand, when we have a category that's specifically for inaccuracies, then I'm going to talk about those. Yeah. But for the, for the most part, a lot of the liberties that they took, I was like, yeah, I see why it's more interesting to dramatize it. For example, that Gehrig is coming out of the game in the middle of the game. Yeah. Like in, in real life, he told his manager the day before, I don't think I can play anymore yeah. rather than like getting up to the on deck circle and like trying to swing a bat and deciding that he couldn't do it. But I don't, I don't ding the movie for portraying that inaccurately because it's a much more interesting way to watch ultimately the same story. And also the movie I think is largely successful at what it's setting out to do. I think that Ellen and I both wish that there were more baseball in this baseball movie. Always. But the film wasn't, you know, the film wanted to be this other thing and we would have preferred it to be this other thing. But I think it's it's mostly pretty successful at the thing that it that it wants to be, especially as a, a film that was coming out when we were just entering World War II. And so a lot of the qualities that people saw in Lou Gehrig, they were really trying to emphasize as, I think, kind of things that people in a this new kind of like wartime era are are going to have to like look at and try to live up to. Like it was meant to be an inspiration. And even in Damon Runyon's introduction that the little right after the title card kind of echoes that where in describing, you know, this is the story of the hero um, of the peaceful paths of everyday life in this kind of laying out what you're going to see. There's also the sentence, he faced death with the same valor and fortitude that has been displayed by thousands of young Americans on far-flung fields of battle. And so I think that that kind of the spirit of the man in this era, for any number of reasons, was the focus of the film more than the baseball itself. And I think it did a pretty good job of that. Yeah. So let's move on to our next category. Um, which is acting. Mm. I'll go ahead and go first. Yeah, I was as, waiting. As Eric and I are just exchanging a glance. Um, I'm sort of torn between 55 and 60 here. I think the performances are great, but not transcendent. I 
agree. I think I'm going to go 60 myself. I think that's fair. I think I might go ahead and go 55 if you're going 60, so that I feel like that point of view is also represented in our overall scoring of this category. I wonder a little bit with Gary Cooper, and I don't know... It's always interesting. I mean, I've I've definitely seen a number of movies from this era, but I'm by no means an expert on them. And I'm always interested in how the style of acting has changed. Mm-hmm. And there are moments within Gary's Gary Cooper's performance that I think are really good at what it is. And I'm not sure, I don't know, like I kept thinking about how Sam Wood was someone who worked in silent film a lot and some of maybe that maybe that inspired or is a little bit behind why some of Gary Cooper's performance knowing that about Sam Wood almost felt slightly silent film like to me there were some definite like silent film type moments just gesturally and also with facial expressions it seemed a little bit indicating and some of this was but then I also wonder well is that what's going on or is this an older Gary Cooper trying to show people youth or trying to show innocence. And I'm not sure that I ever quite got the answer for it in watching it. Sam Wood, by the way, also was not always a director. He did start, um, I believe, as an actor. He might have done other things as well. I think he was a an assistant to Cecil B. DeMille for a while. But this is an anecdote that I wanted to say at the beginning and then for, forgot. But when Sam Wood was an actor, he had different billing depending on the type of role that he was playing. What? So when he was playing a leading man, he would be billed as Sam Wood. But when he played villains, he was billed as Shad Applegate. What? Shad Applegate. Oh my God, that's Hilarious. Unbelievable, right? Oh, man. But, I wouldn't have a career if I had to have a different name every time I played a villain, though. <laughs> oh, God. Chad Applegate's a really good Chad one. Chad Applegate though. is very good. But so, you know, it's a, a director who's directed a lot and, and has experience acting. And this is really a, uh, I'm not, mm, a murderer's row of actors in the film. I'm so Divorce. sorry. I'm so Divorce. sorry. Well, Gary Cooper was kind of in the middle or even like the early middle of a long run of just like stellar work. He had won the Oscar just the year before. Teresa, that's her name, right? Teresa, Teresa Wright. Wright. Won the Oscar that the year of Pride, got nominated for Pride of the Yankees and won for a different thing. She was like one of the early people to get nominated for two Oscars in the same year or in different categories. She won for Mrs. Miniver that year. And Walter Brennan, who plays the kind of conglomerate press guy, Sam Blake, already had three Oscars by the time this movie came out. So there were a lot of like just this was a big deal of a film where they they brought in a lot of prestige people. And I think that that mostly shows. And the other way that I think it shows is that you see a lot of these like smaller parts and character parts where I think that um People do really good work. I thought the girl who played Myra was awesome. I thought the kid who plays like the adult, the adult little kid. The adult little kid. Yes, totally. The, um, the, the little, the sick little boy grown up and able to walk. I thought he was, I thought he was wonderful. Yeah. I thought the players, the actual players playing were themselves great. Here's, were great. Here's what I wanted to say in this category for sure. Like props to Babe Ruth. 
for proving that he was not the simpleton that he is depicted to be by John Goodman. <laughs> um, like, he was actually great in he this. He was wonderful. And also props to him for losing, like, 70 pounds or something. He on lost what a I, lot of weight, What yeah. I can only assume was a, like, the machinist type of a diet. Yeah. And you can tell that he's, you can tell that he's older. Like, there's that first game where he's kind of, kind of slapping the ball around and you see him like it's not batting practice but he's kind of just tapping balls that are getting tossed to him and you can tell that that he's a little stiff and whenever you see him walking you can tell that he's he's got kind of an old man walk but he's super charming he's super natural um he's more plausible than the irishman (laughs) i loved his his first entrance into the locker room where the one of the players is complimenting him on a home run and they say, was that 38 or 39? And he says, I'll hit him, you count him. And then he takes a big bite out of a sandwich. Like, that's the Babe Ruth that I want Classic to babe. like worship at the altar yes, of. Yes, 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 totally. There are a couple of things with him and food. Because then when they're all gathered together in Chicago, I think, after the game, he comes up to the chef and there are these big pieces of meat. And he's like, I'll have one of these and one of these <laughs> and a pork chop or something like that. Um, You could tell he was just having a great time, which is awesome because, I mean, Babe Ruth is depicted kind of as a legend, obviously, but there are, like, Lou Gehrig is the hero of this film. And although the kind of tension between them is hinted at a couple of times, mostly they kind of put their, like, rivalry, such as it was, to the side. Well, interesting fact, Eleanor Gehrig actually did not want Babe Ruth himself to be in the movie. Really? Yeah. She she wanted, you know, somebody else to portray him. And I think it's because she felt like the actual presence of Babe Ruth would maybe overshadow him. And I think it's also because she had the sense of, like, Lou stood for the right stand-up part of the game. And Babe represented the kind of, like, you know, rowdy, you know going out and drinking himself into oblivion side of the game. Right, um, right, so right. didn't want his actual person to be a presence in it. But um, there were many things that she wanted in this movie and uh, didn't get yeah, most she, of them. She got a number of them, she got though. Some. I mean, we can, we can yeah. definitely talk about this. Um, but the um, I know we're supposed to be talking about acting, but it seems to me there are only really a couple of moments that kind of imply rivalry between Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. One is that fantastic straw hat prank where they Babe Ruth enters into the railroad car that the team is on with a brand new straw boater and is like, don't ruin this, guys, like you did the other one. I'm serious. And one of the players grabs the hat when Babe Ruth enters the card game, takes a big bite out of it, hands it to someone else. That person does the same. And then they hand it to Gary Cooper. This is definitely a moment where I feel like he's projecting like a, gee shucks, I'm just a kid and I'm just enjoying myself. It's 1923. Yeah. (laughs) And takes a bite. And then they encourage him to take another bite out of it. And that's when Babe Ruth turns around and he's, I don't know what he says, but it's some kind of like, why I ought to my hat. Like very kind of typical stock angry guy response. And then the other thing is through Sam Foyle, um, I can't remember his name, the other, the the bad guy journalist who's always kind of like 
pushing back against the thought of Lou Gehrig's greatness. And Sam confronts him kind of two-thirds of the way through the film about what was described in the bad journalist's story as a, quote, accidental home run. And he defends it by saying, I'm just writing what Babe thinks. And Sam Wood has a great, one of a few really great lines in the film. His response is, you could write all that Babe ever thought on a piece of confetti. Pretty good. Pretty good. Zing! Zing. Mr. Tanglefoot. Mr. Tanglefoot. Mr. Biscuit Pants. But yeah, um, we'll see. There might be other things to talk about in terms of acting just as we go along. But but all in all, I felt really good about it. Oh, and um, Bill Stern, is that his name? The the announcer? I thought we'll, he, we'll, we'll talk. Well, I just I also just thought that he was um, he was great in terms of people playing themselves. I know we we're going to be talking about him more specifically later. But I thought that the actors and non-actors both really held their own. And yeah, even with the quirks and the, oh, this is from a different time stuff, I never really had a problem with the acting. Same. Same. Even if I was rarely blown away by it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so we're going to move on to our next category. And I promise our next couple of categories are going to be quite as long. This is delightfulness of catcher character. This is, uh, uh, I would almost call this my category because I am always in love with the catcher in a baseball movie. I'm only sometimes in love with the catcher in a baseball movie. And and this movie is no exception. It's true. Like, 50 is probably fair. Like, a, a normal person would watch this movie and be like, who was the catcher? Right. But, like, I want to say 60, but I'm going to say 55 because... I'll go, yeah, I'll go 55 also. But, like, I developed a crush on Bill Dickey because of this movie. Is and that because of his... It, I don't... Yes. <laughs> so, uh, this this is the first time that I saw him. I will fully admit that I had no idea what Bill Dickey looked like before seeing this movie. And the first time that he was on screen, I was like, hey, who's that guy who looks like Reese Hoskins? <laughs> um, because he does, kind of. But he's just, he's also, like, great in this movie. And he he's, he's just, like, a super baseball movie catcher, actually. He's, like, the good guy friend on the team. Yeah. And he was, he was a fantastic baseball player, obviously. Yeah. Um, he was, I didn't put it all together that there was, uh, was it the All-Star, the All-Star game that Carl Hubble struck out, like, a bunch of incredible people in a row? Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had their names right, like at my fingertips, but I don't. Um, the person who sort of like broke that up, like he struck out like four people in a row and everybody was like, damn, Carl Pebble. Yeah, and then it was Bill Dickey who like, who Bill. got the hit after that. And he also, the one little anecdote that I did in refreshing myself on my Bill Dickeyology, Bill Dickstery, was that he, there was a moment where in playing the senators where someone slid into home, I haven't even been stealing home and Bill Dickey disagreed with the call and there was a fight and he threw one punch and broke the guy's jaw. And I feel oh, like that Bill. moment at the end of the film, I know, hello. Um, <laughs> Gehrig's got, Gehrig's got thick pants and Dickey's got a thick right hook apparently. <laughs> but, um, but I, it sort of felt, and maybe this is just me knowing it, kind of projecting it onto the film it kind of felt like that that punch that Bill Dickey throws in the locker room against one of his teammates who says an awful thing about Lou Gehrig 
kind of late into something like, oh, he's going to need crutches to round the bases or something, throws a punch and just drops the guy to the point that like he almost comically falls out of frame, which is a thing that Ellen and I both really love. We like it when things disappear. Yeah, when things disappear, it just makes them so much better in a in a cinematic storytelling sort of way. And it almost felt like a nod to that moment. But maybe I'm just reading into that. I don't know. Anyway, he was super delightful. He was. So um, our next category is the delightfulness of the announcer. And I feel like Eric and I, we might end up disagreeing on this. Why don't you go ahead and go first? Well, I found him to be very delightful and at the same, it's a tricky thing to weigh because I found him to be very delightful, but he's not, he's a pretty small character in the film. And so he only has so many opportunities to be delightful. I think I would go like 55. Okay. All right. Yeah. My, the way that I, I said 45, just because I felt like he was totally forgettable to somebody who doesn't already like stan Bill Stern and be like, oh my God, it's actually Bill Stern. It's actually him. Like having not well, m- much prior opinion of Bill Stern, like he-, he passed with no notice to me almost. There was one moment that I really liked that pulled me in and just paid a little more attention to him afterwards. And it's at the beginning. I feel like the lion's share of his work is in that kind of amorphous World Series game against the Cardinals, where he's doing the announcing for that. I think he maybe appears elsewhere, but that seems to be the main chunk of the film that he appears in. And there is a moment where he receives the news about the little boy wanting the home runs. And so much of the game ends up being framed by will will these heroes uh, make good on their promises? And there's just a little moment as he's getting and processing the note where he has like a kind of satisfied, oh, that's great. Oh, that's a good angle for this. That moment that is felt very fairly like sophisticated acting wise. And that just made me like him and want to be on his side. And I think that I just kind of rooted for him after that, which is why I think I would put him as above average, if not like a ton above average. Okay. That's fair. I think I'm going to stick with 45. I mean, definitely the like, you know, journalist types are larger characters in this story than is the announcer. Yes. There's, you know, obviously. Sam won't leave them alone. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Yes. He's like everywhere. And then it's interesting to me that like, as I was watching it, that I was like, it's kind of the tropes of like, you know, the one journalist who is a champion of this player. And then the other journalist who's a total naysayer of that player that I feel like we will see in so many other baseball movies. Yeah. And it's sort of interesting because, you know, Herman, how do you say his last name? Mankiewicz? Mankiewicz. I might be saying it wrong, that, okay. but that's, yeah. That he was a journalist. And so it when I when I saw the movie, I was almost like, I feel like this is people's ideas of what journalists are. Mm-hmm. But then learning that he actually was a journalist, I was like, oh, well, I don't know, maybe not. Yeah. Sam Blake really is just around everywhere. 
Like there's the moment where where Eleanor is well, uh, like Lou's not home again. I don't know what's going on, and he's there for some reason, being like, "What are you talking about?" And like, "Oh, this great hero, you're oh you're you think that he's like cheating on you?" Is basically the implied thing, and he's so wrecked. And then she drives him out, and like it's got this feel of like we're gonna catch him in the act. And then it turns out that he's umping like a a kid's game of baseball. And the whole point of it seems to be sort of like, uh, we pulled a fast one on like this other member of the family journalist. Yeah. And there's yeah. there's the moment where they're um where they're I think they're on a beach in Florida. It's like a spring training thing. And they're like, it's this romantic thing where they're wrestling in the sand yeah. in bathing suits. And then he just like runs in in his suit and he's like, hey, me too. Ah, you pinned her. Ah, oh. And like, it's so funny and weird. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's a little weird. Like the storytelling doesn't make it weird. But as audience members, it's definitely weird. Yeah. Anyway, that's not about the catcher, but it just popped into my mind. Well, we were on the announcer category. so that's Oh, the fine. announcer category. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, but I think maybe we can move on to our next category. I think we can. All right. So our, our, our last category is lack of misogyny. On our last podcast, we discussed that we still want a positive score to be a reflective of a good thing and a negative score to be reflective of a bad thing. So rather than the category being misogyny, we have it be lack of misogyny. And <laughs> I feel like you just, just like you need to adjust for park factors, we need to adjust for era here. 1942. And so yeah. I'm going to give this an era adjusted 50. I think it's fine. There were a few things early on that I was like, okay, I see you, 1942. Like, when Eleanor was listening to the game with a doll, despite being a, like, fully grown woman. And that is she, really weird. When she was shown to have a canopy bed that is totally ridiculous for anybody over the age of eight. Or, like, when his mom was like, I would rather die than have something go against my plan. But both characters, I felt like were redeemed, at least in terms of being interesting, complex characters. You know, mom ultimately, like, comes around on baseball, and I feel like Eleanor is shown not to be sort of, like, flighty and ridiculous. Well, I would have thought that you would have been for the mom, even in her initial despair, despite the Hartford, Harvard, he's going to Hartford when he signs with the Yankees, to help her in her sickness, which was an actual thing that happened. And she misinterprets it and thinks that he's continuing his engineering education at Harvard. And um, when the reveal happens that he's actually playing for the Yankees, which is another weird moment where suddenly the house is flooded with like 10 people, kids, ladies, like a guy leans in through the window that ultimately, and I wrote a note about this, ultimately this, this storytelling point was I wrote something like mother in despair to learn that her son is playing for the Yankees. It's true, yeah. I guess I hadn't thought about that as as a reason that I would have been sympathetic. I think I was thinking about it more that, like, and this is one thing that still kind of bothered me. I know, era adjusted and everything, but the character of Lou Gehrig in this film has a real issue with telling women the truth. He <clears throat> refuses to tell his mom that he's, like, playing yeah. baseball. And there's this whole sort of, like, it's going to be okay because mom never reads the papers. That's never said, 
but like that is implied yeah. because she's like, oh yeah, yeah, I never read the newspapers, and it's like, oh okay, well then your entire plan about your mom not finding out that you're playing for the Yankees is predicated on your assumption that she's not going to be able to find out herself. Yeah, and, and then and then I mean. I, I also felt when I was watching the film that all of this sort of like, you know, aren't I your best girl stuff was mm-hmm. like kind of weird and icky and like wouldn't pass muster nowadays in storytelling. And yeah. the whole like, oh, look at the ladies bickering about wallpaper. But for me, what sort of changed this was, first of all, like, actually, I think it's not bad for the era, but... The, some of the research that I did afterwards suggested that his mom was actually a bit of a horror show. Like, you talked about this earlier. Mm-hmm. That she, like, wouldn't let him date people and that she and uh, and Eleanor actually had this very intensely caustic relationship and that the movie actually did quite a job to try to, like, clean it up and make it more sort of acceptable and more reasonable. And, and, I, and I think I, that there was some resentment there because I, I found the exact quote that Gehrig said in relation to his mom and Eleanor, quote, she broke up some of my earlier romances and she isn't going to break up this one. Yeah. Yeah. So actually the thing that I was sort of like, oh, is this just like, well, this is what moms do. They're just super attached to their sons. I was like, oh, actually they, they did, I think, a, a good job of not demonizing her. Like, ultimately, I, I I approved of what the storytelling did with those female characters, given the material that they were working with. Especially since she kind of recants her, like, you should be an engineer thing. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, on the eve of, or the morn, not the eve, the morn, of his 2000th game, where he's eaten some flapjacks, he... <laughs> He teases his mom by saying, oh, I don't know, I don't really care about this. I'm thinking about engineering like Uncle Otto, which was the big thing throughout the first half hour of the film. And she's suddenly like, oh, God, why, why waste your time with that? I hadn't really thought in my kind of provisional score, which I was going to rate a little bit higher than you, and I might still do it. I'm going to go 55. I think 55 would also be fair. Um, I, 60, Era adjusted 60 55. feels like a little too much. 60 is um, too much. The the thing with the newspapers, I wrote it down because I thought it was so incredible, especially for a mother whose whole thing for the first part of the movie is like... Don't you want to be an engineer? Valuing like education and all of that. And when the news is revealed uh, that, that Lou Gehrig is going to be called up from Hartford to the Yankees, the neighbor says, oh, have you read the paper? And she says, the one says white, the other black. I never read them. And I thought, that doesn't seem like the thing that a person would, a, a person who values education would say. Not to mention the fact that part of the whole scheme of this secretly playing baseball in Hartford while making mom recovering from sickness think that you are continuing your engineering education is that he Lou is sending money to his dad and the dad is like well like I don't have a job where am I going to say it it came from say you got a job a job in what I don't know like decide and there's this funny moment that I think is meant to be funny but then there's like a part of me that's not totally sure based on how it plays out where he goes politics he just decides that he's going to tell his wife that he's become a politician. 
And the mom in that same moment is like bragging on her husband, being like, he's a politician. And, you know, sometimes he doesn't feel like going to work. So he just doesn't go like that's how important he is. And that felt some of it was comedic, but some of it just felt kind of purely misogynistic of like this silly woman is just like believing, believing this like very, very flimsy story that's being given. I mean, that said, some of the younger women, I, I feel like, do seem like fairly progressive. Even like Myra is flirty and she's got like a, well, I hope you won't think it's like bored of me to ask for a dance. She doesn't seem like the bad guy exactly. Like she's playing along. It's not a good thing that she did, but like she's like fun and winning. And I don't feel like, I feel like the movie almost like goes out of its way to be like, look, this is like, we're not making a judgment on her being like a slutty person. She's just in on like a joke that's kind of mean to our hero. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the same with Eleanor. She seems to like know her stuff when it comes to baseball. She's wearing like a cool bow tie in the stands. There were things, and maybe some of that's superficial and not really worth bumping it up from 55 to 60, but there was enough there that seemed probably not exactly typical for that time period. I mean, I know that like my my grandmothers who were probably around the same age during that time would have been like a woman wearing a bow tie? Oh my, like scandalized by like certain things. And without making a statement on it, I do feel like there were certain things that deserve credit in what the movie did. Yeah, I think actually uh, I'm fine to go era adjusted 55 as well. Mm. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So now, at last, we're going to move on to our next segment, um, which is shorter. Uh, This (laughs) segment is titled Yes or No. So uh, we have a few yes or no questions. And they are the same for all of our baseball movies. We might add some, but we haven't added any since last time. So, question number one. Would this movie be better with Kevin Costner in it? Um, I'm going to give a yes with a but. Just in that, like, um, and not one of those Lou Gehrig butts. Um, Shucks. <laughs> boom. Thick biscuit. Um, I... I feel like this movie is right up his alley in terms of like what he can bring to a film. It's it's very heartfelt, but also charming and fun. And and that is how I see Kevin Costner. And as I get older, I just see it more and more. And (laughs) and so that's that's one thing. But I don't but it's hard for me to think of Kevin Costner like replacing Gary Cooper. It's hard for me to be like. Bill Dickey, get out of here. Like, Kevin Costner's on the way. Like, I think that I like I want him to be in the movie almost, like, not as a replacement, but by just, like, an additional character on the team that is, like, not in the movie that we see. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I also think that, yes, this movie would be better with Kevin Costner in it. Although that is assuming that it's not so jarring that we're just sort of assuming that like acting styles from different eras can meld. Sure. Because that, yeah, that it wouldn't be totally jarring to have acting Kevin Costner era acting style with 1940s era acting styles. Yeah. 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 But like, I actually 
It's not that I in any way dislike Gary Cooper's performance, but I think that I would actually prefer to have seen prime Kevin Costner playing Lou Gehrig. Yeah. I feel like maybe we could have gotten a little bit more baseball activity if he, because yeah. he, he very plausibly plays a baseball player. Absolutely. Um, so I feel like, you know, maybe, maybe in the Kevin Costner version of this movie, uh, we'd have gotten a little bit more of that. Cool. So for a slightly different reason, well, no, mostly the same reasons, but like we're both a yes. Ultimately. Yeah, we're both yeah. a yes. Um, so our second question is, uh, we don't have to talk about this for very long. Does this movie reference Babe Ruth? Well, no, it doesn't because Babe Ruth is in the movie. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say yes. It. it does reference him because he because they're like, oh, hey, there's Babe yeah, Ruth exactly. over there. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Babe. <laughs> yes. All right. Fair enough. Uh, next question. Is there a dog? I can't remember. I don't think. I don't think a there's a dog. There's no dog in this movie. Like I, I'm, I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure that there's no dog. And that's a shame. And it's a, it's a great shame because there could have been a real opportunity for a dog in the like boy Lou Gehrig circum. Uh, oh yeah, he could have been like chasing like a do doing that hoop thing yeah. down the street with a dog that's happy being like I don't know what's going on but I'm a dog there could have been him. a dog yes yeah. or there could, like any number of the of the boys in the in the sandlot could have could had, had a, a dog. dog instead of holding a doll in that weird moment Eleanor could have been holding a cute little dog this movie would have been infinitely better if Eleanor had had a dog. um Babe Ruth could have just had a line of like, you know what? I like dogs. And then pulled out a dog. That, I would have been like, I buy it. That would have been great. Yeah. 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 Um, so our Yankees fans, the main antagonist of this film, is our next question. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with a no. Yeah. No. I think no. Obviously, the main antagonist of this film is that horseshoe of roses, the way that they just tear it. The they they really, boy, there's yeah. nothing left they, of it. Yeah. Yeah. There isn't, I mean... Aside from aside ALS. from ALS, like <laughs> it's not really an antagonist. I mean, it's funny because I and it's maybe to the movie's credit, but it also maybe is what they had to do. There isn't a super straightforward villain, just because I think aside from ALS, I don't know that there was really. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. I don't know that there was really that much of a solid villain in just Lou Gehrig's life. Like there were ways in which he didn't. I don't even want to say didn't get along with, but had some tensions with his, his mother. mother. Was problematic, but but like she wasn't a villain. And towards the end, not even towards the middle, she's like crazy fan. Oh god, that moment where they go to the first game and the mother and father are there super early, and there's like a guy at one point right after that who is selling programs, and they don't want a program. And the guy says, well, how are you going to how are you going to tell who the players are without a program? And she says, I can tell who my son is. The others aren't any of my business. It's yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Particularly but, knowing that her son is going to pinch it for like one at bat. Yeah. Yeah. That is, again, like that's not a villain, though. I feel like the closest we maybe come is the, is the sports writer who just doesn't like Lou Gehrig. And like, that's not a villain, but that's maybe the closest that we come. Yeah, and like similarly, Van at the right. at the frat is right. a villain for five minutes of the movie. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So this concludes our segment. Yes or no? So uh, our next segment is called Six Degrees of Baseball, 
in which we name one person mm-hmm. or maybe two. Okay. But we're not here to compendiously name every person in this movie who has ever been in another baseball movie. Um, so my obscure, maybe, baseball fact is that Bill Dickey is also in the baseball movie The Stratton Story. What? I haven't seen it yet, but someday I will. Did you have a, a Six Degrees of Baseball fact that you wanted to share? I, I guess the only thing that I was going to say is that um, Babe Ruth had acted in a lot of things leading up to this. He had done a lot of, like, one real kind of family-type things. <laughs> family-type things. They weren't, like, hard R films in the 20s <laughs> that he was doing. He, he wasn't getting, like, the Quentin Tarantino treatment. Um, but, you know, anybody who's seen Ken Burns' baseball will uh, remember the clips that are shown from that one of one of those one real things of like a kid falling asleep in a classroom and imagining Babe Ruth coming in and like getting all the kids out of the classroom and then like teaching them about uh, different kinds of pitches and all of that. There is a feature length film that he starred in called Babe Comes Home from 1927 that is lost to history as as far as I know. I think that that's like there isn't an extant copy of it. I don't even know if a script of it appears. Um, but just looking at IMDb, I think it's really funny in a tragic sort of way, because in all of these short films, as well as in The Pride of the Yankees, Babe Ruth plays the role of Babe Ruth. And in Babe Comes Home, the feature length film Lost to History, we will never get to see how he transformed and stretched his abilities to play the role of Babe Dugan. <gasps> oh, yes. Babe yes. Dugan. So you can set that as a very close number two behind the burning of the Library of Alexandria in terms of great works lost to time. He did it with a, a, a limp and a lisp. <laughs> so uh, we're going to move along to our last segment now. Um, what was your maybe favorite moment in this film? Oh, man. I forgot that we were going to talk about this and I haven't thought about it. I um, can go first. Yeah, go first. Although... I've got some candidates. But... I've I've mostly talked about it already, unfortunately. Um, would, I think my favorite moment is, is when the policeman... Maybe both of the policeman moments, if I can borrow both of those moments and mm-hmm. combine them into one. When the policeman harasses Gehrig when he's outside of Eleanor's house and then ends up coming in and then when the policemen realize who's in the car that's speeding on its way to Yankee Stadium and decide to form a motorcade. Yeah, um, there are a number of little moments that I really like. I think I have my answer, which is kind of like, it. it's a moment that I think has slightly muddy storytelling, but I still really love it, which is kind of like the sequence of the dates, the first dates, like including the the carnival and the club, not oh, no. as a whole. No, 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 no. Hear me out. I think it's almost like the moment that ends it all. Because they do this very, like... I mean, by the way, she's a fancy person, and the movie does not make a big deal out of it at all. Which I think is, like, kind of interesting. She is quoted as the Hot Dog King's daughter. Which sounds like the name of, like, a Decemberist song or it's something. De- it's definitely, yes. But they go to the carnival... They go to like a club where they see some fancy dancing and um, a radiator is coming on, guys. And Sorry. and Irv- the Irving Berlin song "Always," which was the Gehrig's like song, 
And I think something that Eleanor like insisted or not, in, maybe not insisted, but it was a move, the song that she chose. But there's a thing after that, after this dating sequence, where the timeline of it is the thing that I think is weird storytelling wise, because it kind of seems like it's all one night. But then at the dinner where she had been like, let's get hot dogs and champagne, which again is that like poor guy, rich girl dynamic. Um, She's the hot dog king's daughter. What else is she going to say? He then says like, well, we've been seeing each other. That like you're my you're my best girl, right? And she's like, "What do you mean?" And he says, "Well, we've been seeing each other for the last four nights, but it's not been clear. Sometimes time moves in like a weird way in this movie." All of this is to say, it's such a dumb little like anecdotal scene that I feel like does not do justice to all of the great work in the film. But the thing that I'm just thinking of is when he's like talking to another player, and he's like. Um, and like, oh, I'm seeing this girl, whatever. What does it mean when you're called a Newfoundland puppy? And, um, and he goes, if it's an Airedale, bad. Police dog, fatal. But Newfie, I'd see her again if I were you. And I don't know, but maybe just being a dog person, I just really it's appreciated closest, that moment. It's the closest, actually, we got to there being a dog in the movie. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I don't think that counts as a dog being in the movie, by the way. I don't want to set this dangerous precedent. However, a mention of a dog is better than no mention of a dog. Yeah. So I have a lot of I have a lot of little moments like that that I love. I love when he's at Columbia and they're talking about Lou Gehrig's like football career. He actually went to Columbia like for football, which is an interesting thing. It makes sense that it's not in the movie, but like that was a new fact to me. And there's that shot where the window gets broken and it's framed by the feet on the desk on either side that I'm just, I just love that shot so much. There are like a number of things along those lines where it's hard to call it a favorite scene or favorite moment, but maybe a half dozen moments like that, where when I watched it, I was like, Ooh, that's good. I like that. Um, so in ter- it's, it's ironic to me that you chose the, the date, as like maybe one of your favorite moments. I was so mad during that <laughs> sequence. I was so mad because the, we see this whole dance and then we see a whole song. And we had seen like zero baseball to that point, except for a couple of montages. There was no baseball sequence whatsoever. And so I, I was... I was livid, actually. I was like, you're showing us this whole dance. This is not a dance movie. This mm-hmm. is a baseball movie. Yeah, no, it, um, it definitely, it, it like, it definitely gave dance more reference than baseball. I, and again, maybe that's part of the reason why, like, some of my favorite moments are kind of, like, weird and unrelated. I thought that the the Hartford, or not, the, the montage of him sitting on the bench is is also, I just thought it was like fun and interesting. Some of the, this isn't a favorite moment exactly, but I am delighted when I think about it, is um, not the sitting on the bench montage, but the montage that came before it, which is him getting his skills up in Hartford. And as he's like practicing and like learning how to slide and like doing some fielding stuff, 
there are all of these newspapers. It's like a newspaper montage where there are all of these headlines. And the headlines have, you know, Gehrig tireless at first and Gehrig tireless worker, says manager. And it just made me think of those. It feels like the kind of thing that inspired, I think, Matt Groening, like with The Simpsons, like the, the Simpsons team, I feel like really when they do their like headline, like twirling newspaper gags are really referencing things like this movie uh-huh. where they would have like the headline, like Gehrig tireless at first. And then there'd be another headline like below it that says like slow news day <laughs> or something, <laughs> because it's like, why is this on the front page of a newspaper? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, like it feels incorrect to call it a favorite, but I was like delighted by so many of those moments. Do you have a least favorite moment? I would have loved a little more. This is again, a wish I would have seen rather than a scene that I saw that I didn't like. Um, but I'll think about it when you give your answer. Because that's a separate case. question. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, is that a separate question on our list? Yeah. Oh, well, why don't you go first and let me, let me just think about it. So I think that my least favorite scene was the scene where they learn that his condition is bad. Maybe because I saw it three times and every time. That's my fault. Eleanor's costume with these stupid flowers on her hat filled me with more and more rage. And her shoulders look like slices of pizza. Yes. Yes. She has these like ridiculous pocket triangles. Um, And the fact that Gehrig was like, you can't tell her that I'm dying made me angry. And then she comes in and she's totally fine and everything is fine. And then there's this moment where she droops and she says, when is Lou going to die? And Sam says, how did you know? And he's like mauling the edge of his hat. It's completely unsubtle. And she says something like, I knew from your faces the moment that you walked in. And I'm like, well, then why didn't you register the bad news in any way earlier or take off your awful hat? I, yeah. There were a lot of things that just irked me about that scene. Like, right at the point when the movie had mostly taken me in. Yeah. You, it's, you're fine to I, not have a least favorite scene. You can just be a super, totally positive person who never dislikes anything. I think my least favorite scene is also my favorite scene. Because like the because I, I do agree with you about everything that you said in terms of the date. Oh my and, god, it was and so long. I like I, I oh. did I did love the I did love the little like dog related exchange and I I don't know, I think that it just kind of like is it, it was like something about the tone of it that I really enjoyed and just seems like a good example of things that I enjoyed in the movie that feel kind of quirky like why is this even here but it's fun and it's specific and i like it and at the same time it doesn't seem to really work and i'm like what is this doing that test of strength where like a random guy is like well if you're doing anything athletic you gotta like put your wrists in and that's what'll do it and it seems kind of like ha 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 it's so funny this guy on the street is giving lou gehrig athleticism advice but like it's advice that he needed and it worked and like that's just like a weird well and i kept on waiting for it to show up as like a storytelling moment of like and that was the moment when he really started crushing even more bombs but like it was never but it never was referenced again and like when he's hitting when that scene starts and he's like 
winning all of these prizes for Eleanor by like hitting baseballs. And like, she seems like over it, which I appreciated. But that was another moment where I was like, as a person, I'm enjoying this because I think it's so weird, but it, it's not doing anything for the movie. It's, it's kind of running counter to what I feel like should be happening right now. And I, I guess I feel that way about a lot of the movie in general. And part of the reason why I like it is there are things that I'm not even sure that I think are, it's not something that I watch and I go, Oh God, this thing that I'm writing, if only I could capture a little bit of that magic. It's nothing like that, but I love the eccentricities of it. But I also acknowledge like they're like not always great storytelling. Similarly, I feel like I could give, could give a blanket answer of any time Lou Gehrig acts like a doof, which just felt very awkward and forced to me. Mm-hmm. But I also found interesting in a storytelling way of like, he's an all-American hero who like can't talk to girls and is weird around people and wants to be a part of the group, even though everybody ultimately like looks up to him. It's a very interesting dynamic, but it played in a very strange way. Anyway. So what is a scene that you would have liked to have seen in this movie? I would have liked to see more between him and Ruth and the complexity of their relationship. Mm -hmm. I get that this is not the movie to explore that. I get that there were a couple of moments that kind of like hinted at it and that's fine. Um, That's really it. Um, I just... Not knowing a whole lot about it, what I do know, I find very fascinating, and it's it's cool to have complex rivalries within a within a roster. And I'm always I'm always turned on by that story, and I would have loved to see a version of their uh, their version of that. But I get why it wasn't there, but it was something that I missed, especially since Babe Ruth himself was there. Yeah, um, this is. Maybe a very weird answer to this. I would have liked a scene with a black person in it. There's like two black people in the whole movie and only one of them has one line. And I, I realize that this is also just an era. It's one of Eleanor's thing. servants, right? Like No, no, it's like it's it's always in sort of montages of like how is Gehrig doing and you see it's like a he's like a barber or something. Oh right, where yeah, where they're like, all like hoping they're hoping that he's going to come back. And yeah. It's like the barber and the dentist and the cop and yeah, yeah. And and so I mean, I we talked about the Sun po- first podcast. I grew up without a television. I haven't seen a ton of old movies, and so I it's always really weird to me to see old movies and they're like it's like just white people. It's just very strange. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that's, like, maybe not actually really a criticism because probably a movie made at this time wasn't going to do anything about that and it's not really a storytelling point. You could still want those scenes, though. But, yeah, I just... Yeah, it was just... It's just weird. It's just weird to me to see a, like, totally white world and I'm glad that that's not what we see in movies anymore. Yeah. Um... So then uh, our last question is, did you have a favorite performance in this film? I mean, I did really really like Babe Ruth, but 
I really like, I'm going to go with Teresa Wright. I thought she was super winning and great. And I, I really loved everything that she did. And she brought so much to that character. I, and I, I like a lot of the performances throughout, but I, I, it's not even actually that hard for me to say that I think at the end of the day, she's tops for me. Same for me, and you can see that I have it written down on my piece of paper. Yeah. So I'm not even copying off of you. But yeah, I think Teresa Wright was wonderful in this film. Like, very winning, very... There, there were a few moments that felt like a little old-timey to me, but there were a lot of moments that felt like very fresh and spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, I think that um, I think Gary Cooper did a great job in this, and I loved all the ball players as themselves. But I thought Teresa Wright was wonderful, and I'm glad that she won the Oscar that year. Yeah, for Mrs. Miniver, and weirdly, this. Uh, Pride of the Yankees was either her second or third film performance ever. What? Her first three film performances were The Little Foxes, uh, Mrs. Miniver, and Pride of the Yankees. And she got Oscar nominations for all three. Oh, and man. one for Mrs. Miniver. Because she's just that good. Yeah. Do you have any other things that you would like to say about the Pride of the Yankees? I, I, I don't think I do. I think we've done a pretty good job of of hitting most of the things that I actually I mean there's plenty more we could talk about I'm sure but but just looking over my scattered notes here I think I feel pretty happy with uh with our conversation excellent um so we are a machine that records for exactly one hour and 43 minutes to talk about these things (laughs) um So we will see you next time for hopefully another one hour and, well, now it's going to be 44 minutes. Oh, no. Oh, it's getting longer as we're observing it. (laughs) Chris Davis batting average. Boom. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you guys so much. Uh, If you hung in with us thus far, you're probably our moms. (laughs) We'll see you next time on Take Me Into the (laughs) Ballgame. Bye. On our next episode, we are going to be discussing A League of Their Own. So, you're welcome. You get to rewatch A League of Their Own. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball.